Thank you, Pastor Dan. Um, we do want to take some time to spend in the Word this morning, and we're going to go back to our series in the book of Acts. Many of you know that as we have um, been studying as a church, um, just, just by the way, for those of you that aren't familiar with our ministry, uh, we do participate in what's called expository preaching. And so that is, that is another way of saying we go verse by verse through the text of Scripture and um, understand that and apply it to ourselves uh, unfolding that text. Right now, we are preaching our way through the book of Acts, and we are now in Acts 17. So let me just kind of give you uh, a quick overview of where we are. Just for context, uh, recall that we are in Paul's second missionary journey. We've done a little bit of bouncing around because last week um, for Resurrection Sunday, we actually went backwards in our progress uh, to capture a passage that was uh, particularly relevant to the resurrection. But now we're in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey and coming here to Acts 17. As we do that, I would like to invite you, if you have a Bible in front of you, to open to Acts 17. Acts 17, and I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 15. So Acts 17, verses 1 through 15, and that will be our consideration for our time together in the Word this morning. So follow along as I read aloud Acts 17, 1 through 15. This is God's Word. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and they are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king. Jesus. And they troubled the crowds and the rulers of the city when they had heard these things. So, when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. May the Lord bless this, the reading of his word. Father, we ask you in these moments that we have together that you would use your word in our hearts in a powerful way. 
Help us, Lord, to understand it and to apply it. Lord, that we may have an impact on others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We learn from this passage of Scripture what a powerful ministry looks like. We learn that you and I can impact others through a God-honoring ministry. You and I can impact others through a God-honoring ministry. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean to have a ministry that has a long-lasting impact? Maybe when you were in high school or maybe when you were in college, you studied the classics. You remember studying Shakespeare? Um, Maybe you didn't like Shakespeare. Maybe it was a lot of work for you. Maybe you had to look up a lot of words and read the Cliffs Notes and all of that to understand what was going on. But you remember that your teacher made you read it. And, and that teacher, he or she said to you, well, this is, a, this is a classic. What does it mean to be a classic? Well, it's something that lasts. It's something that endures because it conforms to, to timeless principles. And because of that, it has a long-lasting impact. So Shakespeare is the, is the yardstick by which English-speaking literature is measured for, for decades and even centuries to come. That's a classic, a long-lasting impact because the the principles of the literature itself were solid. His writing had an enduring effect because whether you enjoyed reading it or not, he wrote in a way that was powerful, that was superior. And that's not a subjective question of taste. That is an objective measure of that which is enduring. That's what a classic is. Well, perhaps you'll never have the literary influence of a Shakespeare. You might not have the musical impact of a Bach, but you can have a long-lasting, an enduring ministry to others. And the first part of Acts 17 here gives us a model for, for understanding the truths that undergird a timeless ministry, a powerful ministry that lasts. And so from this passage, we learn that you and I can impact others through a God-honoring ministry. Now, this is a passage of Scripture in large part that we're talking about the ministry that Paul and Silas had in the city of Thessalonica. Now, if you know your New Testament, you know that there were actually two letters that were later written to the Thessalonian believers. And so we're actually going to, quite a few times this morning, cite the writings of Paul to the church in Thessalonica, the letter to Thessalonica, the church there. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul makes this statement. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. In verse 3 of that same chapter, he says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. Paul's ministry was consistently a powerful one. This impacting ministry, it's unarguable that, that Paul had a profound ministry. And so Acts 17 kind of shows us a sampling of what Paul's ministry looked like. And observing his habits, learning from him, can also inform us in what ways we should minister to others. 
We learn in this passage of Scripture that a powerful ministry, in order for us to have a powerful ministry, it must first focus on Christ. If you have the, the text open there in front of you to Acts 17, you'll notice in verse 3. It says, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer. So in this passage here in verse 3, Paul is presenting logical and cogent arguments. Notice in verse 3 the word demonstrating. Perhaps if you're using an English standard version, you might have the word proving. This carries the idea of laying out logical arguments. So he's laying out this argument, this case from the Scripture, that the Christ, that is the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, why is that so significant? It's important because you you understand that many of the Jews were not expecting a suffering Savior. They were not expecting a Messiah who would come as a sacrifice. Rather, they were expecting someone who would come as a, a conqueror. Well, we know from Scripture that one day Christ will perform that function as well. But in His first coming, He came as a sacrifice. And this was a surprise, but Paul explains from the Scriptures how this was meant to be, how this was in the plan of God. So he's laying out careful arguments, and those arguments are all centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Again, I refer you to 1 Thessalonians, which I cited just a moment ago. I I declare to you the gospel which I preached, in which you stand, by which you are saved, which you have believed. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried, that He rose again on the third day according to the Scripture. It's important for us to understand that our ministry, our our speaking with others, our engaging with others, is focused on the good news of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul was doing when he laid out for his hearers the truth about Jesus. Christianity is not merely a religion that encourages people to clean up their lives. It is not merely a system of works by which we appeal to people to to do better. It is not just a, a, a moral standard that we present, calling people to a, a, a standard of morality. No, it is, in its very essence, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. We must not lose sight of that. When we lose sight of that, we reduce the work of Jesus Christ to to some moralizing force, and it is not. It is a a miraculous force, force of new birth that buys us back from our sin and bondage. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Scripture is clear that every one of us, you and I, are born in a state of separation from God because of what is called sin. Sin is that which we do that violates the will of a holy God. We do things that we ought not to do. We fail to do things that we ought to do. And because of that, we deserve separation from God, but not just in this life, even in the life to come for all eternity. And so you and I, in our natural state, are separated from God. In fact, the Bible says that we are enemies with God. We don't like to think of ourselves that way. That doesn't, that doesn't stroke our pride to think of ourselves as enemies with God, but the reality is we are. And there's only one thing that can put us in right relationship with God, and it's actually not anything that we can offer. It's no good works that we can do. It is no religious tasks that we can perform. It is the work 
of Jesus Christ. And so for you, my friend, to be put in right relationship with God, for you to be forgiven of your sins and have relationship with God in this life and for all eternity, you must be forgiven of your sins through the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ is your only hope. You see, repentance is turning from my way, and we must turn from our way, our way that relies on self, our way that, that informs our own path. Instead, we must turn to depend on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. I wonder this morning, have you ever done that? Has there ever been a time where you've abandoned your own way, that's called repentance, and you've depended on Jesus Christ? This is saving faith. As we mentioned before, if we can answer any questions or help you in this journey to clarify what that means, to show you from the Bible these passages, any of us who are members of North Hills would be honored to be able to do that. And so I would, I would appeal to you, as the Scripture does, repent and believe on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. If you are a believer this morning, keep the gospel center. In your day-to-day -day walk, in your day-to-day -day life, be reminded that, that the relationship that you have with God through Jesus Christ is not of your own merit. It is not of your own goodness. We must depend every day on Jesus Christ in our Christian walk. And then, and then it is imperative that we are also clearly explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that we do is centered in Jesus Christ. We're not calling people to to a, a moral standard. We're not calling people to, to think our way. We're not calling people to, to, to align with our values. What we're calling them to ultimately, first and foremost, is to a Savior named Jesus. And so that is the reminder this morning. There is no ministry. There is no power in ministry except the good news of Jesus Christ. We can offer some nice platitudes, a little bit of encouragement, but without the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no lasting impact on others. We must keep Jesus, the message about Him, front and center to be effective. It's not just true in the Christian life in general, but as we think about our life as a church, it's important as well. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 4. Where we, where we see in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Colossians 1.18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. There's a story told about the Last Supper. When Leonardo da Vinci was 43 years old, the Duke of Milan asked him to paint a scene of the Last Supper, Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples. And so he was diligent. He was meticulous. He gave careful attention to details. He spent three years on this assignment. One day, he had a visitor who came and observed the painting that he was working on at the Last Supper. He said, give me your opinion of it. This friend said to him, it's wonderful. Oh, look, look at that cup. The cup is so real. I, 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 it's almost like I can reach out and grab it. it I, can't, I can't take my eyes off of it. All about the cup. With one stroke of his brush, Da Vinci 
marked through, he, he swiped away the cup. He says, there is nothing that should detract from the figure of Jesus Christ. And that should be our attitude as well. That there's nothing that distracts, there's nothing that draws us away from the portrait of Jesus Christ, from Him being at the very center of all we do. Do you and I do that? Do we draw our attention to Christ? Are we interested in increasing the focus on Him? Who is at the head of our church, of our life? What is most important? We understand that Christ is to be the head of the church, that He's to rule us as individuals, to rule us corporately as a church, but how is that accomplished? How can we say that Christ is, is to be preeminent in our lives, in our church life, in our individual lives, in our family? He's supposed to be the ruler, so, so how do we do that? How do we make Him center? Well, the answer is something else that we see in the life of Paul. You see, we are obedient to the living Word, by obeying the written word. Jesus Christ has not left us to wonder about how we please Him, how we make Him the center. He's actually given us detailed instructions on how we are to conduct our individual ministry, our corporate ministry, and that is through His Word. And so, the next thing that we see about Paul's ministry is not only did it focus on Christ, but it actually put the Scripture at the center. A powerful ministry rests on Scripture. You'll notice this in the text here in Acts 17. Notice in verse 2 with me. Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. From the Scriptures. Paul went to Berea after he was in Thessalonica. He continued to use the same biblical basis for his appeal. He laid out arguments that the language indicates he, lang he laid out arguments much like an attorney would. But those arguments were always rooted in Scripture. Notice if you skip down to verse 11 during Paul's time in Berea. Acts 17 verse 11, these, now this is the Berean Jews in the context, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Verse 13, same, same uh, area. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that, notice, the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there and stirred up the crowds. This is exactly what Paul says he did later when he writes to the Thessalonian believers. In 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 5, he says, Neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. What did they do? Well, verse, 14, verse 13 and 14 tell us, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you to believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. Paul appealed to the scriptures. What he argued, what he stated, what he gave to these hearers was the word of God itself. Many of you know that um, 
I work in the restoration industry. I own a business that does restoration after people have uh, had property damage, fires, floods, those kind of things. In that industry, you have to be very detailed with your scope of work because that's what you're going to end up submitting to the insurance company uh, for, for payment to be made. Well, very detailed, line by line, exact measurements. And so when I'm talking to someone who, for example, is going to be a subcontractor who's putting in baseboards or sheetrock or something along that line, I'll give them a written copy of the scope of work. And if they have any questions about what they're supposed to do, obviously they can ask, but a lot of times my answer is, well, what does the scope of work say? And I'll have to go back myself and look at it and remind myself, okay, exactly what is in that, that written scope of work. And they're, they're supposed to look at that written scope of work to determine what it is they're supposed to do. Well, as believers, we ought to be that way in our lives. What, is the, what does the written word say? Let's go back and check and, and discover what we ought to be doing, how we should conduct ourselves. What is the, the proper course of action by, by referring to what has been written? We have no other basis for living our lives than the Word of God itself. You'll notice that here at North Hills, we actually make our preaching predicated on that truth, that we really have nothing aside from understanding and applying what the Word of God says. And so uh, we'll tell folks in our church, and I tell those of you that are listening in, just because someone says they speak on behalf of God doesn't necessarily mean they do. If someone tells you God has said, then they should be prepared to show you how God has said. It's not enough for me to, to claim to be a spokesman of God, but in fact, but fact, I should be taking you to the Scripture and saying, see what the text says, see what God's Word says, appealing to, making arguments based on the authority of the written Word. This is how to have a powerful ministry. It's not through charisma. It's not through our own thoughts. It's not through, through flashy shows. It is through appealing to the truth of God's Word. When you look at the preaching of Paul, he had a profound impact because he was appealing to God's Word. He was making his arguments based on God's Word. He was applying God's Word as we as believers should be. It's true of our church, in our corporate ministry. It's true of you if you're a believer this morning. What does God's Word say? As people ask you questions, well, what do you think about this? Our reflex should be, well, it really doesn't matter what I think. Here is what God's Word teaches. If I were to list people that have had powerful ministries over the years, it wouldn't be long before we would mention the great reformer Martin Luther. Luther publicized his teaching in, in a powerful and forceful way. But he was called on his convictions. He was called to give account. And when Luther was on trial... He said these words, I am bound by Scripture. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. It's believed that he wrote this little poem. God's Word shall stand forever. The Bible shall prevail. God's Word shall stand forever. His truth can never, never fail. 
Feelings come and feelings go and, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. God's word shall stand forever. A powerful ministry rests on Scripture. We see lastly that a powerful ministry confronts the word. Well, you don't have to read much about Paul in the book of Acts to know that not everyone liked his message. Not everyone received the truth that he was speaking. In fact, it's obvious from this passage that many did not like Paul's message. Someone has commented, Paul's preaching usually ended in a riot or a revival. And so in verse 5, we see two responses on the part of the Jews there in Thessalonica. Some believed, others violently opposed the gospel message. They were so antagonistic to Paul's message that when they heard Paul was preaching 45 miles away, they went to Berea. And it says in verse 13, what? They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. It seems as though wherever the gospel is faithfully preached, there are those who will oppose it. Someone has once said, if you're afraid of being lonely, don't try to be right. The truth of the gospel divides. And so we know that there are those who cause trouble for Paul and because of the preaching of the gospel. Some are motivated by jealousy. Notice verse 5. The Jews were jealous. Some are motivated simply because they are in alignment with the evil forces. Verse 5, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, forming a mob and setting the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. Ultimately, all attempts to squelch the gospel are in tandem with the plan of Satan. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I understand that there are people who oppose the gospel who perhaps in their own spirits are, are well-meaning. But the reality is that the opposition to the gospel is the continuance of of, of the work that Satan wants done. This is exactly what Satan wants us to do. And so this opposition to the gospel is actually motivated by a plan, by a wicked plan. We've mentioned before in the past that the spread of the gospel actually produces persecution. Now, it's worth pointing out that, that kind of a generic, weak, lethargic version of Christianity, one that just kind of goes along to get along, doesn't bother anybody. That is not the form, the version of Christianity that offends. What offends is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It will attract the ire of Satan. I was recently just talking to one of our members who is meeting resistance over articulating the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you, if you appealed to any other historical event and, and provided evidence of that, most people wouldn't get opposed, wouldn't, wouldn't get upset, wouldn't oppose that. Why? Because there's no demand. There's nothing that is associated with another historical event like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the, the person and work of Christ demands a response. It, it calls for us to repent and believe. It is not just a, a sterile historical fact, but it is one that puts demands on people, and that, that will be opposed. 
So again, I go back to Paul's writings in 1 Thessalonians. In, in, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples of all in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith towards God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. And so because of the persecution that they endured, because of the opposition that they endured, Paul actually says that the word of God became that much more powerful. And so Paul has a powerful ministry. The believers here have a powerful ministry in part because of the opposition that was reached. Tim was a small business owner. He heard the preaching of a visiting preacher one time and he, he realized that he needed to do more to be a testimony for Christ. And so he, he started to include tracts, gospel literature, in the mailings that went out from his company. It was remarkable the variety of, uh, of responses that he saw from his customers. That's the month after he started his practice. He got the nicest note from an elderly man in Nebraska who said how glad he was that his company was interested in sharing the gospel. Another letter he got, though, had a very, very different sentiment. In the letter, the man said he had requested information, not that religion be crammed down his throat. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced opposition for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? In Mark 4, Christ tells us that there will be many responses to the gospel. This parable of, of the soils illustrates the different responses to the gospel. And it's ultimately not up to you and me how people will respond. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, So then neither he who sows, he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. I wonder this morning, have you gotten distracted by people's responses to the gospel? Have you gotten focused on how individuals respond to the gospel rather than being faithful in sharing that good news of Jesus Christ? We tend to sometimes be selective, to be careful about our witnessing to those who are not yet believers. We must be willing to be loving, but to also lovingly confront, and then leave the outcome to God. Perhaps some of you right now are facing opposition in your neighborhood in your workplace, amongst your family members? What will you do to remain faithful to the message of the gospel, to, to, share the, the, to bear the light of the gospel to others? I trust that this morning you want to have a powerful impact on other people. You and I can have this kind of a, uh, an impact on others as we, as we imitate the, the ministry of Paul who had a God-honoring ministry. We need to be reminded of the basics that our ministry for Christ is about Christ. He is the center of everything that we do. That a powerful ministry is, is, in, is energized by and informed by the truth concerning Christ and that we find those truths in God's Word. That the powerful ministry rests on Scripture and that that kind of a ministry will confront the world. You and I can have an impact on others through a God-honoring ministry.